Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. I just want to name that perhaps you also are going through so so many emotions these days and between the the virus and uh, and recent events, um, it's good to just collect and be still and just let it all be held in in a spacious awareness. <clears throat> I was just on a, a webinar. I mentioned. Uh, the last few weeks, there's going to be a webinar um, earlier today with uh, Jack and Jack Cornfield and Tara Brock and Van Jones about getting out the vote in Wisconsin, uh, and it was it was beautiful. There were two thousand over two thousand people on the webinar, um, and when Van Jones spoke, uh, I was really everyone was so moved. He started talking about what where he's at and he just started sobbing now i've seen van jones on uh, on tv a lot and he always has so such dignity and and clarity and um centeredness and he just kept on wiping away the tears uh it was very moving and um it's also very I think important and healing to just give space for all the, all the feelings. And a lot of the, te the tears were both uh, sadness and also um, possibility. So we're at this moment right now that has to hold both of those sadness and lots of feelings, outrage and hurt and pain that we might feel ourselves and certainly see others um, expressing so strongly and, and courageously. And at the same time, this is a moment. This is a moment that I think we're all going to be remembering. This is a watershed moment, especially with the whole world. Uh, first I thought, oh, well, the whole world going through the pandemic together, that's that's pretty amazing, but the whole world going through a, um, a call to awakening of conscience and consciousness um, is even more amazing. So um, it's with, uh, with great pleasure that, um, that I'm uh, glad to have Deb back with us tonight. Um, as I said, if you weren't here last week, she was. She led us in a conversation. We'll continue uh, tonight. Uh, Deb is a core teacher at East Bay Meditation Center, um, probably the most diverse uh, meditation center, certainly uh, in the West that I know of, and probably anywhere. And Deb was one of the co-founders of East Bay. Meditation Center, one of the I think eight core teachers, and um, uh, has taught uh, white uh, white awakening um, groups there, and 
She's also a member of our community. She's taught at the monastery and she's a, a, a dear friend. We've, we've been together through um, for many years and I have just great respect for her and so glad that she can be with us to continue this conversation. Well, I'll just say one, one thing before I uh, give it over to Deb. Something that she said last week has, has stayed with me when we were on last week. When I, I think I maybe was in response to a question that I asked her. I said, so how, how has this impacted you, all of this, this work? And she said something that I've really taken in and experienced myself where she said, you know, it, it's, not, it's not just something to be informed about and have, uh, have, have some understanding um, about the problem that, uh, that uh, marginalized people go through. This is our problem. It's all of our problems. And it's, um, it's something that I've gone through uh, just in myself, a, a subtle shift this week where it wasn't like, oh, I really, I really want to and need to be more informed as much as, as I can. I've gone through some diversity trainings through Spirit Rock and a few others, but this week I've been hungry for it. It's not just, oh, this is, I, I should get around to reading this book. I've been, I've been needing to and wanting to, and I hope the same might be true of you. This is something uh, that's, that's all of our problem and all of our um, uh, needs, all of our commitment. Um, so uh, I've been really already benefiting from, from you being here, Deb, and, um, in subtle and, and not so subtle ways. So Deb, why don't you take over now? Thank you, James. Um, <clears throat> one thing you forgot to say about me is that I'm a grateful student of yours. <clears throat> um, and uh, I'm, uh, that's, that's really foremost in my mind right now. Um, and um, yeah, to all of you tonight, I, I'm really grateful for your generosity of spirit in being open to doing this learning and making this part of your practice as well. So um, of the very briefest of recaps of what I spoke about last week, last week I spoke in fairly great detail about my own sort of journey learning about white privilege and white supremacy. And there are really three, um, three main, main learnings. The first one was in various ways being exposed to and letting in the suffering of people of color, um, particularly in starting up East Bay Meditation Center, and then in doing the community Dharma leader uh, training uh, that James was heading up at that time, um, really hearing that uh, people of color suffered from not feeling uh, seen and not feeling safe in the predominantly white uh, sanghas of the time. Um, and, you know, that really landing um, in a way that I could hear it and uh, take it in. And then the second thing was learning about white privilege and really getting that, although I didn't create racist systems, I benefit from them while people of color are harmed by those same systems. So the work of um, 
<clears throat> right, Peggy McIntosh, there we go, um, you know, is, is phenomenal uh, in just pointing out all the ways, whether we are, um, you know, I've, I've been extremely privileged in my life. And, um, and it's certainly true that not all white people have been extremely privileged. Um, and, and a lot of white people have had to really struggle. Um, but we all as white people have, th have things that, um, that we can count on, um, you know, like not being viewed as a criminal, um, not being uh, potentially at risk if we're top stopped by a, a traffic police officer. Um, and, and just on and on and on, you know, being likely to be able to borrow money, being likely to be able to live where we want to live and so on. And then the third thing was what James just mentioned, really going from, you know, it's even, it's even like when we get that there's, that there's white privilege in the world, it's still sometimes easy to say, yeah, there's that, but um, I'm a white person. I don't really have race and race is what those other people have. And the problems that come up around race are their problems. There's still this, distancing that we are pretty conditioned to do and so the third piece of learning was that it really is my problem and that I can't be truly free our society can't be truly free until everybody is uh, is on an equal footing uh, James I think you wanted to read something from uh, Robin DiAngelo at this juncture uh, unmute myself yes uh, I told Deb that um... I have a few books that I wanted to recommend, but one that I've been reading, I was up at five in the morning this morning saying, I need to read more of that book. Uh, this is called uh, White Fragility, uh, Why It's So Hard for White People to Talk, to talk About Racism by Robin D'Angelo, um, who is white. Uh, just, just notice what happens when you hear that, that phrase, white fragility inside and she talks about that but i'm going to read uh, just another little passage um, racism differs from individual racial prejudice and racial discrimination racism is a system of advantage based on race this is how um, she's using it people of color may also hold prejudices and discriminate against white people. And she talks about, and in Buddhist teachings, about how conditioning, we're all um, creatures of conditioning of the things that we take in and that they affect our worldview. Um, people of color may also hold prejudices and discriminate against white people but they lack the social and institutional power that transforms their prejudice and discrimination into racism. The impact of their prejudice on whites is temporary and contextual. Whites hold the social and institutional positions in society to infuse their racial prejudice into the laws, policies, practices, and norms of society in a way that people of color do not. 
A person of color may refuse to wait on me if I enter a shop, but people of color cannot pass legislation that prohibits me and everyone like me from buying a home in a certain neighborhood. When I say that only whites can be racist in this regard, I mean that in the United States, only whites have the collective social and institutional power and privilege over people of color. People of color do not have this power and privilege over white people. And a lot of her, her talk is, uh, her, her presentation is about how we are so um, conditioned that we don't see our, our power ourselves. And when it's, when it's, um, when it's questioned and we are, we are called, we have some racial, we have some racial advantages or racist uh, advantages. We cringe and, um, and get very defensive. And uh, that's what this um, book, White Fragility is about. So. That's yeah, th thank you, James. That um, and that um, that whole point is going to tie into what I have to say later about connecting the dots. Um, so that was very timely. So I'm going to read two things now. One is a very brief piece by Willie Brown from last Sunday's paper, and the second is a letter from a um, white police officer's wife. Willie Brown says, "What struck me most about the anti-racism demonstrations I watched." and participated in after George Floyd's death at the hands of police was that in many cases, it was not black folks leading or making up the majority of the crowds. It was young white people. Young white people have discovered that for all our cell phones, Zoom meetings and other technological advancements, there is one problem we have not dealt with in this country and that is race. I can't breathe didn't start with George Floyd. I Can't Breathe didn't start with the choking of Eric Garner by New York police in 2014. I Can't Breathe started with somebody on that slave ship in 1619, and black folks have been mistreated by cops ever since. And these young people are going to deal with it in a way that is dramatically different from the past. They are going to deal with it by demanding that each and every one of us deal with the racism in ourselves. Here's the letter from the, uh, from the wife of a police officer. Um, this was uh, shared on Facebook, um, which is where I found it on a friend's site. Um, but the woman who wrote it did ask that if we shared it, we not share her name um, because of safety concerns for her and her family. Okay, I'm the wife of a law enforcement officer and I love him so much and have mad respect for him and nearly every officer I've met yet. But I'm pretty largely silent about officers lately, which I'm sure feels hurtful to some because it's painful being an officer. It's painful to love an officer. It's painful to fear for an officer. And recently it's painful to fear for your family as officers' families are threatened. But every time I've felt fear, loss, grief, anger, or have seen how this affects my children, I realize I'm glimpsing the tiniest glimpse into the pain of something I've never had to experience as a white woman. And I even cringe as I write this, 
because I mean the absolute tiniest. Today I've removed my address from the internet and checked door locks often. During the protests, people shouted about hanging white babies from the trees. Yesterday I listened to my husband describe bricks and rocks bouncing off his body as people screamed terrible things in his beautiful face. I should be screaming about these threats, this abuse, this fear in our lives, except I can't because I feel brought to my knees thinking about the modern and historical experience of black mothers who desperately loved their families and had no power, no protection, and no way to save them from the horror in front of them, who worried when the weekend came about staying in and locking doors because the weekend was when whites were off work and school and having fun throwing bricks through windows and lighting fires. These mothers, these mothers, have you read the writing of Hess Love? It is impossible to read without feeling an enormous space crack open inside you and threaten to swallow you with its pain. She writes as an enslaved black wet nurse forced to feed white babies at the expense of her own who died because of it. And here are the words of Heslove. I wish I dried up. I wish every drop of my milk slipped past those pink lips and nourished the ground where the bones lay of my babies, starved while I feed their murderer. I wish I dried up so the missus's babies would dry up too and be brittle so I could crumble them to dust, return them to the ground where all children of my bosom lay equal. End quote. The absolute pain and abject cruelty of her experience, silently woven into these words of rage and hatred, allow us to see what's been done to her, the horror she's been put through, what her innocent baby endured, and what she had to watch while being forced to feed another's baby. These words haunt me. And this is only one of many horrors faced by Black mothers throughout American history. This brings me back to George Floyd and today. Guys, he cried mama as he died. A tall, strong black man cried mama as his life slowly left him in public, capable of being saved, murdered by a white man. And the mamas heard. They heard. I am not a black mother, but at that word, my mama heart pounded desperately in my chest. The collective black trauma that must have been experienced watching that video, I can't even imagine. I watched a black teenager interviewed at the protest last night. He said he's been crying all week after seeing George Floyd killed. He teared up while saying it. The pain around the world is no doubt due to Floyd's mistreatment but when everyone heard that mama, it called up ages of rage and grief. Rage and grief I can only imagine feeling if I had to experience the same. White people, we just do not understand. Do not say it was a long time ago because that phrase is only true when you've taken accountability for something, but America never has. 
America has truly never reckoned with its terrible past because that's terrifying. Do I want my family to pay for that? Absolutely not. But do I understand why this is happening now? You bet I do. Does it make me think twice before I mention the momentary pain we feel? Yes, it does. Do I still love all the officers I know while still saying that racism is still here, alive, thriving, and impossible to keep out of policing if we don't respond thoroughly in times like these? That desperate, sorry, that despite loving a law enforcement officer and knowing why so much of it is good, that I can demand that police brutality be taken extremely seriously. That despite the love I have for the people I know, I feel a deep aching pain for what this country has done and desperately want to be a part of taking steps towards a better future. I don't want to hurt anyone. I don't want anyone hurt. I don't want to be scared. But people have to understand what's happening here. There is a legitimate, deep, seething, bottomless grief and rage that is demanding our attention and accountability. It wants us to feel it, to see it. The longer we don't, the longer we try to control it, to crush it, the more it grows. This movement demands accountability that we see and understand. White people, are we ready for that? So I think she should run for president. Uh, It's just so, so well put. Um, So I'm gonna talk a little bit about how racial justice relates to the Dharma, just in some very simple kind of basic ways that I'm sure could go a whole lot deeper. Um, One of my favorite quotes from the Zen tradition I'm primarily a Theravadan type person, but I like some quotes from from Zen and other traditions, is that the whole of practice is finding, quotes, an appropriate response. We practice to increase our wisdom and compassion and to decrease clinging. And eventually, as we practice, the Dharma transforms how we are in the world. So again, from the Zen tradition, we go up on the mountain, we practice what we can of awakening, and then we come back down from the mountain and, quotes, chop wood and carry water. We do the ordinary work of the world, but now with a clear mind and an open heart. So working for racial justice, learning about white privilege, about white fragility, about racism. This is the ordinary work of the world. And with the tools of the Dharma, we can bring that clear mind and open heart to that. So um, I'm gonna talk about three primary ways that I see the Dharma related to racial justice or vice versa. The first one being uh, sila, um, the idea of um, an ethical base for our actions, 
for our way of being in the world. And particularly uh, sila as a support for practice, that if we are not acting ethically, it'll be very hard to sit with a quiet body and calm mind. So this ethical uh, sense supports our practice. And it's really easy to see how it applies to racial justice because for centuries, literally, um, harm has been um, uh, perpetrated against, against brown and black bodies. And there has been a lot stolen from them in the, in the way of wealth. Um, you know, the wealth of America was built on slave labor. That's demonstrable. And so just looking at the, the not killing and not stealing part of Sila starts to get us into the realm of how this relates to racial justice. And looking at, you know, looking at Sila um, as being the basic framework for non-harming it's not enough when looking at issues of racism to stop with a passive sense of not harming. By this, I mean sort of a standing by. It's like, oh, we sort of cruise through our lives as white people. I'm not actively racist. I'm not going to white supremacy rallies. Therefore, I'm okay. But that's a passive stance. That's standing by. And that's not enough in, this, in the sense of not harming. Not harming requires actively working for racial justice, actively educating ourselves and each other. So that's the piece related to um, the ethical teachings. And then, you know, the, the Dharma is largely considered to have two wings, the compassion wing and the wisdom wing. Um, the wisdom wing starts with mindfulness. You know, that, that's like the strongest tool we have to see what's true, to be present for ourselves and others in the light of what's really true. And these days, you know, what's really true is things like that letter I read, um, really seeing how people are suffering in these specific ways related to racism and understanding that that's part of our practice. So being present for ourselves and others on this path, and that means self-care too. That means, you know, um, really, you know, the, the adage is um, if you're on the airplane and the masks drop down because there's an emergency, you put your own on first before helping others. We always have to work in self-care and um, seeing that we're maintaining our own capacity to carry on this work. So wisdom, you know, mindfulness leads us into the teachings, the insights into wisdom, which basically um, boil down to seeing that the world is not perfect. Therefore, there, there will be unsatisfactoriness and suffering. It's not personal, meaning that the less I identify with this body, mind, heart stream as being I, me, or mine, um, the less I identify with racial conditioning as being who I am and start to undo that, the better. So things aren't perfect, they aren't personal, and they're certainly not permanent. And wisdom is the 
capacity to see into those truths. Um, and really in this case, um, to be able to let go of self-identification that narrows me down, particularly around race. And this is where, you know, white fragility comes in. It's like, I've been experiencing that. I've been having waves of that these past few weeks since James asked me to teach here and, and uh, in some other places. And, you know, that's, that's basic ego clinging. It's like, am I going to be, am I going to look like a fool when I get up here and, and start speaking? And what do I really have to offer? Um, so seeing through that and acting anyway. Um, and we all know that if we're not clinging to a narrow sense of who we are, there's a lot more space for freedom. And then going over to the compassion side of things. If we intend to heal suffering, it's always true that we have to let it be felt first. And then as Jack Cornfield says, the heart quivers in response to that suffering. And that, that quivering of the heart is the compassionate response. We move into a space of wanting others to be free of suffering. And also under the compassion side of things, of course, would be loving kindness practice. You know, in the, in the deepest senses, we all belong to each other. And we can love each other. We can love ourselves. And when we act from that place of love, love moves into action to assure the well-being of all. Um, which brings us to the bodhisattva ideal, again, from the Mahayana tradition. The idea that if someone is teetering on the brink of enlightenment, which will take them off the wheel of samsara forever, the bodhisattva ideal says, I will delay my own salvation until everybody can come with me. I will make sure I keep working until all beings are free. And so, you know, looking at the issues of racial justice, it's like, I am not free until you are free. There's no way I can be free until you are free. And so I will stay in this work until everyone is free. You know, in learning about um, the racial conditioning we have as white people uh, from Ruth King and as well as others, it's clear that we have sacrificed um, a lot of liveliness in our culture in order to um, subscribe to these to this conditioning, even when we're not aware of it. And I want I want to get that liveliness back. I was I I heard just the opening words of uh, George Floyd's funeral in Houston the other morning, and you know the um, the minister of the church was speaking and saying. We are here to celebrate George Floyd's life. And I know that's, that's a common phrase used now for funerals, that it's a life celebration. And I, I subscribe to that. I really like that. But the way he said it was infused with the full sense of love and joy of the Black community. And it just, it moved me so much because 
I'm not sure that my community would express it the same way, would have that incredible access to joy at that moment. Okay. So um, the bottom line for me in looking at um, racial justice connected to the Dharma is, and forgive me if I said this last week, I don't, I don't remember if I did or not, but about a month ago or so, um, I'm taking an online course from Barry Center for Buddhist Studies on Satipatthana meditation with Analayo, and we were doing contemplation of death practice. And in the course of doing that, um, it became uh, clear that contemplation of death brings me right up against what matters most. What matters most with how I live my life? Um, And the answer came really quickly that what mattered most, um, if, if I were to find that my life was to have a, a short uh, span in front of me, and who knows, it could, right? Um, is loving those dear to me. And then in subsequent weeks, and after George Floyd's murder, I was following that thread. It's like, okay, what matters most? Loving those dear to me, extending to being as loving and kind as I can to everybody around me, and then extending that into racial justice. Uh, really wanting to create the conditions so that all people can live. It's experiencing that sort of love. Okay, a little bit about uh, connecting the dots, which I mentioned earlier when James read the quote from Robin DiAngelo. When we do this work to educate ourselves about white privilege and racism, it works on two levels. It works on the individual level um, where we change our own hearts and minds and understand what's at stake more and understand how we got conditioned like this. So we understand our own hearts and minds better and change them. And that incre- And then we talk to other white people. That's crucial, working with other white people too. The more we do that, the more it increases the chances that the people of color around us will be safe. So on an individual level, that starts to really, really build up. And it increases the chances that they actually will be safe. And it increases the chances that white people, ourselves included, and those that we're talking to, we'll feel the motivation and the confidence to do this work. And then educating ourselves about racism and talking to other white people works on a systemic level. I uh, heard a great interview with um, the Reverend William Barber a few days ago. He's the head of a movement called the Poor People's Campaign, which was something actually started by Martin Luther King Jr. But, um, but more recently, revived um, as a broad-reaching movement for social change. And he was saying that if racial justice is to be achieved, it will happen through change on, on all levels of society. 
the criminal justice system, healthcare, educational systems, labor policy, policing, housing, mental health, environmental policy, and so on. And this can only happen through mass legislation. And that can only happen if we have good legislators. So white people as well as people of color need to understand the suffering caused systemically and the importance of voting en masse for change at the highest levels. So the individual work we do leads to a groundswell for real change, which enables truly just systems to be built. And I know James and Jane are doing a whole lot of work in this regard right now uh, with the upcoming November elections. Okay. Um, so, now we're gonna do breakout rooms. Last week we gave you all a little bit of homework and um, the homework was in the form of two questions, uh, either of which you could reflect on um, in the breakout room. Um, the first question is what comes up when you hear the words white privilege? And the second question, sort of the, a different take on the same thing, is what is hard or scary when talking about racism? So James, anything else you want to do before we uh, move into the breakouts? Um, I think maybe um, just to take a few moments for, to actually reflect on that um, quietly. So why don't you read those questions again? And, uh, you know, if, if you weren't here last week or you didn't take it on as a homework assignment, uh, here it is right in, in this moment. Just get in touch for you uh, so you are able to, yeah, access that, that truth in you. And remember when we do breakout rooms, one of the beauties of it is that um, besides being seen, you're also uh, witnessing another. So you're both, you're giving that person your presence and you're also taking in uh, from, uh, from others. So why don't you re read once again those, those two reflections. Yeah, I will. But I also want to just make another point and that is we are all conditioned as racial beings, whether we realize it or not. And that means it's not our fault although we do have a responsibility for working with it. Um, so again, taking it in, in the frame of the Dharma, it's causes and conditions, it's impersonal. It's the water we've been raised in as you know, the fish and water analogy. Um, so, and we're all, we're all scared to do this work. It's difficult work, it's painful, but it's also really rewarding. So again, just sort of tuning in to your body and taking a quiet moment and then seeing how these questions land for you. What comes up when you hear the words white privilege? What is hard or scary when talking about racism?
just want to give a few moments for that to land inside you. I just had like a pondering because the other part of, can, can we talk about the other thing, how sometimes it's uncomfortable to talk about uh, racism or how do you talk about it? Because uh, being white, I'm also Finnish and being here, I'm very much um, treated as a foreigner often. And I find it a very complicated equation when I'm teaching my children because I don't know, I really don't know deeply all of the experiences that every uh, black person, every brown person goes through that are so very different from the white privileged person, even if I don't myself feel privileged. Mm. Uh, but like how, how to teach this uh, and how to talk about it. Mm. Mm -hmm. mm. Like our, our children have now been very uh, moved. Uh, first it was anger. We have all cried a huge amount. I still can't really sorry, stop crying. Um, but there's something that like, we are just like not able to really talk mm -hmm. because we don't have that experience some, somewhere like deep inside. Mm -hmm. So if you can mm -hmm. reflect on that in some way and mm -hmm. maybe offer guidance. Thank you. Well, we're all back in the main room. So um, uh, Deb, uh, why, why don't you um, uh, hold the space? So um, I don't know if you if you heard that last that last part. If you have anything to say, or uh, you, you know, I didn't hear the whole thing, but I I got a little bit of the gist of it, and um, if we're white and in this society, we are being we are in the middle of white privilege, whether we are aware of it or not. And that's part of the conditioning is to not be aware of it. Um, and so it really starts with educating ourselves about what that means. Um, it doesn't mean that we've had it easy in life or that we haven't had to work for what we've got, but it's, um, there's this great uh, phrase in, um, there's this book called Waking Up White and Finding Myself in the Story of Race by uh, Debbie, Debbie Irving. And there's a chapter in there called Headwinds and Tailwinds. Mm -hmm. And it's, um, it's really, it was a real eye-opener for me. It's like, you know, yes, at every point in my life, I have benefited by being viewed as uh, a good student or a responsible person or somebody worthy of uh, giving a loan to or worthy of being admitted to a school. Um, all these are are tiny things, but they add up to a bunch of tailwinds that have propelled my life along. Whereas people of color tend to have headwinds. They're not the ones viewed as positively. They're not the ones chosen for the school. They're not the one given alone. They're not viewed as favorably by the teacher. And that has a cumulative effect of slowing you down in life. Um, so I really encourage um, all of us uh, who are white to um, 
to start really looking at this and seeing what those words mean. Um, you know, what, what if it were, um, you know, it's like people will say, I don't benefit from white privilege. I've never had anything given to me in my life. Let's turn the question around. What if you have benefited? What might that have looked like? And how might that have made your life different than if you were in the same economic and uh, other circumstances, but didn't have white skin privilege? Um, because it's, it's, a, it's a reality that, um, that plays out. Um, so, and I see we're getting short on time. So um, I, I was hoping to have more time for other people to share um, any reflections that came up in the, in the group. So maybe just one or two more, if you could yeah, raise your hand. You can raise your hand or raise on digitally, you can raise your hand. Uh, Eunice, yeah. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for the reflections tonight, um, Deb, um, were very deep. Um, during my last few years of being a professor, um, the word white privilege start being used as a narrative in our society. And I remember having mostly white students, they were incredibly confused about what that term meant. And that was a few years ago, and I think people are still confused about what the term means. And they take it mostly as a judgment on themselves, as opposed to an invitation to understand. And I think the way that we need to talk to people who identify as white has to include an element of this is a learning process for them. Absolutely. Yeah. They're not it, just, yeah. they're not just not going to get it immediately. And, um, and as somebody like myself who comes from Morocco and south of Spain with, with, with not your usual Anglo-Saxon features, I, I know the cost of being looked at as a person that is different. But I'm also lucky because, because I have a PhD and I'm a professor and I did some good things with my life. Uh, people tend to respect me for that. <laughs> You know, and um, and this week particularly, I felt keenly the, the impact of racism. One of our neighbors who is white, young and male, and an alcoholic watching Trump and doing what Trump is doing this week, last week, he pulled up his gun in the middle of the community and shot it in the air mm. and scared the hell out of everyone. <laughs> and he was chanting some of Trump stuff. It was incredibly scary. I had to go in the closet of my home and hide at the direction of the police. <laughs> I've never experienced that before. I lived in fear since then and I still do because he was released on bail yesterday. So th th this, this is what happens when people are just living in two complete completely two universes. And where do you find the bridge? I really don't know. <laughs> I really don't know. Well, as you're saying that, uh, it, it makes me just um, imagine what that's like for a, a black man walking out and knowing that that's a possibility all the time. That uh, 
as as we've been hearing mothers uh, you know praying to hear to see their their boys come back um and uh yeah and just to get a taste of that is i i felt it as you were saying it and just makes me you know reflect on what that would be like to have that in my dna yeah yeah, I think yeah thank beautiful... you go ahead oh, sorry um yeah thank you Eunice, for your comments and you know, you make a really good point that white privilege isn't isn't saying that white people are bad because we have that, but we need it's something we need to look at and look at how um, we have those privileges at other people's expense. And you know, the kind of fear that you're experiencing now. I'm terribly sorry to hear that, and yeah. thank you. Um, and I wish you safety and ease. Yeah. I'm doing that, and I think the the, the beautiful th thing that's coming out of this is, is 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 really coming in close contact with my my, my sense of empathy mm. and compassion for myself and for my I, I'm not directly closer to him in terms of proximity to homes, but there are many women of color that are closer to him, mm. and people who identify as LGBT, and it has broken my heart in the last few weeks to hear how terrified these women were. Mm. Yeah, and the powerlessness the powerlessness not to be able to do anything about it but pray mm. Mm. thank you Eunice. thank you um well it's just about time uh, and maybe some last words if you if you want deb before we um before we close i'll just mention a couple of things before you do some books uh that i I'm recommending one that I, um, that Deb mentioned before by Debbie Irving, uh, "Waking Up White." Uh, I don't have I don't have my copy. I see uh, Peter has has my copy. I just loaned it to him. Uh, uh, excellent book. I'll give it back to you. I bought one today. Oh, good. No, well, I, no, maybe if, hold it up if it's anywhere here. But uh, so that's one. Waking up white is a real a real eye opener um yeah with a, a sweet little white girl on the cover that's debbie irving when she was a little girl uh another one um uh that perhaps you're familiar with mm. uh, this is a classic uh tanahisi coates uh between the world and me if you want to get an an insight into um, a, a black man's reality. He's writing this to his son. Um, it's very, very powerful, and he's an, a, an amazing writer. Um, this book that I mentioned before, White Fragility by Robin D'Angelo, um, is, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm really glad I'm reading it now. It's, it is an eye-opener also. And then this one that I think next week I, I want to, Deb can't be with us next week because she has a, another commitment and, you know, hopefully she'll come back at, at, at some point uh, soon. But this, this book, uh, Mindful of Race by Ruth King, who is a, a spirit rock teacher, uh, and it's about the Dharma uh, applied to um, to this question of race, transforming racism from the inside out, mindful of race. And it, 
it, she goes into Dharma concepts and how they can be applied to this. So I think maybe um, we'll, we'll do some stuff if it's still in the air. I have a feeling it's still going to be in the air next week and really hold it in the Dharma perspective. Um, so, uh, oh, one, one other thing I put in the chat room, by the way, um, it's up at the top. I don't know if, uh, yeah, maybe, I don't know if everyone, I guess those are the ones that are to everyone, but uh, Donna PayPal, uh, James Barris activities at gmail.com and Venmo at James Barris. And my last four digits of my phone number is 2902. Sometimes they ask for that. Um, and I've been really appreciative of uh, people's generosity. Uh, I, I really, um, yeah, really appreciate that. So, Deb, some final thoughts, and then we'll uh, do a closing dedication. Yeah, I'm going to read a quote from Ruth King here. Oh, good. Okay. Um, this is about the spiritual side of things and ultimate versus um, uh, relative reality. She says, ultimate reality is what we aspire to in spiritual practice, a felt sense of universal belonging, peace, and harmony that is beyond the limits of concept, yet at the core of racial suffering is a forgetting that we belong. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. spoke of this eloquently. Quotes, all life is interrelated and we are all caught in an inescapable network of mutuality tied in a single garment of destiny. I can never be what I ought to be until you are what you ought to be and you can never be what you ought to be until I am what I ought to be. This is the interrelated structure of reality, end quotes. This interrelated structure of reality points us toward the idea of ultimate reality or non-duality, our kinship in each other's lives. Yet we must first understand the ways in which we have been conditioned to relate to each other before we can know the true freedom of this wisdom. We belong to each other. Can we clear the space in our own hearts to allow that belonging and find our way back to each other? And homework for next week. Mm -hmm. What's the next step I need to take to educate myself? Or for those who may have already done some of this work, how might I act now to use what I've learned? So again, What's the next step I need to educate myself? Or for those who may have already done it, how might I act now to use what I've learned? Thanks so want, much. Yeah. Um, so. Do you want me to do the dedication? Do you, do you have, do you, do you want to close the oh, meeting? Um, I'll, I'll do it. Um, uh, I just am really grateful uh, for you, Deb, and for all your work. You've been um, an inspiration to me in, in this area, in, in many ways, but in, in this area in particular, just you being showing up from the very early days before it was EBMC, when it was East Bay Meditation, East Bay Dharma Center. Uh, and um, so uh, thank you for, for keeping on showing up. And, uh, uh, sharing your practice. Thank you for having me. It's yeah. an honor. So um, let's just um, dedicate the merit, uh, the goodwill of 
all of us gathered here together and um, opening up to both the, the sorrow and the pain and all the love and the, the joy that's possible when people can really hear each other and be there for each other. And that's happening right now. So much love, so much caring. Just holding it all. Yeah, here. At this particular moment. Come on, Mrs. And may we share any good that comes from us gathering here together and reflecting on this and knowing this is just part of a long process that um, that will keep on waking up to. May it be shared for uh, the benefit of all. May all come to the end of their confusion and not seeing clearly and may all feel connected and share their love well and know true happiness and peace. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.